This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. Today's guest on One for the Road is an ex-professional footballer who was forced into early retirement at the age of 28. His relationship with alcohol rapidly changed and his mental health spiraled into an all-time low. Now he has turned his life around and is coming up to celebrating his first year of sobriety. He is also a fellow ambassador for the wonderful Alcohol Change UK and he is a lovely man. So please welcome Fraser Franks. Good morning, Fraser. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. It's a real joy for me to have you on today. We met at a boat party and we had a little chat and I thought, you know what, this is the man to get on. So how are you doing today, mate? I'm all good, Dave. Thank you for having me on. Um, I, I said to you before, it's one that I listen to quite a lot. So, yeah, it's a pleasure to be on here. Yeah. How many days are you alcohol-free now? Oh, so at the end of this month, it will be 10 months. So coming up to a year. 10 months is brilliant, mate. And um, you were a pro footballer. And I was just saying before this interview that I was a football manager for 10 years um, and our team were a youth team, like kids team, which my son played in, in the Tandridge and District Premier, um, which was a really, really high standard. And a lot of the kids were scouted for teams like Fulham, Chelsea and the pressure on the kids, but also the parents as well, because my son was a left footer. Right. Uh, and England had this whole thing about a left sided player. So they were looking for kids like George and he, he was a quite a big kid as well. So he was strong. And at each game they were saying, let's get your kid down to Chelsea. And I held back because I didn't want to put him under that pressure. But I've seen the parents go down that road as well, where they, they, they talk about it. And my son plays for Chelsea. 
when they're actually going to the academy <laughs> for 16 weeks or whatever it was, and then they would get a letter through the post saying, we no longer need your child, so see you later sort of thing. And the kids were like gutted and crying. And so there's such a lot of um, pressure. Did you find that growing up? Yeah, it's, it's something that I work in football at the minute. So a lot of my work involves um, educating parents educating young players, working within the academy. Um, so I still have that passion for football, but it probably does stem from me going in there as that kid. Um, I think a lot of people, I was born, you know, 20 minutes away from Chelsea Stadium. I'd say 75% of my schoolmates all supported Chelsea. So when I became the kid that signed for Chelsea at, at nine years old, I think you'd you'd assume that I was probably this confident young lad, like Mr. Popular in school, complete opposite for me um I was quite introverted I didn't really want everyone knowing that I played for Chelsea um if I joined in in the playground everyone wanted to break my legs because they were a little bit jealous that I was the kid at Chelsea and I think because I was a Chelsea fan and I was obsessed by it I was so in awe of that environment so I'd go in there and you know you have first team players sort of when you when you trained at Cobham which would have been on the weekends you had first team players that would come past you and, you know, you'd have like Zola walking past you and like all my heroes. And for some of the other kids, it they they reveled in that, but I was sort of terrified. So it was a pressurised environment for me. I was always really scared of making mistakes. So that would mean that I'd probably hide a little bit, go into my shell. Um, it is slowly changing and I think I think it needs to because... It was such a tense and, you know, intense, serious environment from a, an early age. And football from the age of, you know, nine up until 14, whatever it is, should be about fun. It should be about development, but it should mainly be about fun and enjoying it. And for me, I look back and I wish I'd have enjoyed it a little bit more. I hear you. And that is part of the reason that I kept George away from it, because he used to love his football. He used to play Saturday and Sunday. So all the pressure of these scouts and, and they would gather around me about oh, Joey this, and, you know, and, and to be honest, some of them did go to the academies um, and it changed them. It, it changed their whole game because they, not their fault, but they thought they was above the other kids. So that sort of broke the team up a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But what I found later when we went through the different ages is when they got to 14, 15 and the girls started coming into it and uh, drinking at an early age. That changed direction of them as well because you, you had a couple of them that really dedicated to the training. They'd be always turn up early for the game and be kicking the ball in the corner, you know, and, and be right on it. And and you get the other kids that would turn up that have been in the academies and you could tell they weren't focused. It's almost like, oh, what am I playing for this team now? You know, and then and then when the booze come in, that you know, going to the parties, that, and that changed as well. And were you, did you keep your? I've heard, I think, that you was a late start with the drinking. That you was it seventeen that you started? Yeah, about seventeen, eighteen. And it was I had. It's interesting you say that actually, because there's a lot of stuff in my childhood that I've started to go back to um, when I've when I've gone sober. Um, and now I remember there was a, a lad on my estate and it was a council estate and everyone played football. Um, Farrah Williams grew up on the estate and she's um, she went on to be the England's highest ever capped female player. So she she went on to be a big, big sort of superstar in the women's game. But we had a lad called Ronnie Fletcher. Um, he ended up having a non-league career, but he was at West Ham, you know, growing up on, you know, in a big team. Like I think he won the Youth Cup and 
was going to be sort of this big star. And I always remember when he was about 22, 23, and he's uh, quite a bit older than me, but he'd always say, stay away from girls, stay away from beer. And there was another few people that I bumped into that always, always sort of drilled that narrative into me. And then I didn't like being around sort of drunk people as a kid. So when I signed for Chelsea and when I had this dream of being a footballer, I remember so clear. I even remember where I was and I must have been six or seven years old, but saying like, I will never, ever touch a drop of alcohol. And I never once sort of was even tempted throughout my early teens or when my schoolmates were doing it. It was never a sacrifice. I never felt like I was missing out on anything because I felt what I was doing was exactly what I wanted to do. So it didn't require any sort of willpower or anything like that. I missed out on all these sort of social situations that other friends went into. And as you say, when when lads do turn, you know, 14, 15, 16, sometimes they do, you know, go off into that path. But I didn't at all. I was completely obsessed and driven by football. And were you judged by your mates for not drinking? Yeah, I think in, in school especially. I So at Chelsea, I ended up, I had a, you end up getting a day release from school. So one day a week or two days a week at school, I would I'd be taken out at half day and then you get to go in and train at Chelsea. So you'd have a couple of days a week where you do that. Then your whole weekend was taken up by football. So we train on a Saturday, play our games on a Sunday. So I just didn't have any kind of time to, to go to these parties. If there was one on a Friday night, I'd be in bed training the next day. If it was Saturday night, I'd be in bed, you know, game the, the next day. And yeah, you were judged a little bit because you're missing out um, and you get the odd comments and, and things like that from <clears throat> from your school friends. But again, I was I was really comfortable with that because I felt what I was doing was was better. I felt like what I was doing was going to set me on this different path from what they were doing, which was, you know, experimenting with drugs and alcohol. And they come in on the Monday morning, loads of good stories and what they've been up to with girls. And, you know, I, I was I was not experienced, you know, with anything like that. But again, I still didn't feel like I was missing out on anything at that age. So at what point did that change for you? Yeah, that, that changed when I, so I left Chelsea. I signed for Brentford. So I got released by Chelsea. Uh, I went to Brentford. And when I left school, all my schoolmates went one way and I went the other way. So lost contact with all of them. Literally had no friends from school. Um, because I think at one point, they ask you to go out with them and you say no that many times that you stop getting asked. But my new social group and my new mates were all my new teammates at Brentford and they still are. So we're still very close. Two of them are best men at my wedding. I've got one of their stag dues this month. So I'm still really close with them and I bonded with them instantly. But that was my new social group. So when we started going out to parties when you, you know, you're 16, 17, 18, it was surrounded by people that were like me. They were never going to touch drugs like some of my school friends did. They were disciplined, they were focused, but these allowed themselves to have a drink at the weekend and sort of be a normal teenager on a Saturday night, maybe. And I started going along to these parties and, you know, I'd had that really strict environment at Chelsea. A lot of these hadn't. They played sort of grassroots football. Brentford weren't the most professional environment at that time. So they probably had a bit of a looser time and, you know, were drinking probably when they were 15, 16 but not heavily, just, you know, socially. And I'd start going to parties with them. And, you know, you'd go and I think there was me and one other that would be sober. Um, and you'd see them all drinking, talking to girls, dancing, having a good time. You come in on the Monday morning in the changing room and they've all got these stories of where they ended up and what they did. And 
a part of me then started feeling like I was missing out. And part of me then felt my schoolmates were not succeeding at anything really. But these lads that were playing football, some of them would be the best player in training on Monday. And I felt I've gone to this party, I've I've not drunk, I've probably felt a little bit awkward and boring, not really spoken to any girls. And then on Monday, I'm not the best player in training. These are. So I felt like if they're being able to get away with both, then I'll I'll give it a go. And I, I didn't drink for the first sort of probably six months of that, um, you know, going to these parties. I was, I was always a sober one. But then I remember taking my drink, taking the first drink and sort of this big cheer and everyone patting you on the back, sort of welcoming you in. But I did feel that it gave me that confidence boost. I was, I was very shy, introverted. I'd never really socialised with girls. I went to an all boys school, which compounded that. But then when I did take a drink, I felt a bit looser. I felt a part of the gang. I felt like I could dance. And I did feel guilty the next day. Um, I remember going for a run, putting a bin bag on, trying to sweat it out because I made that promise to myself really early on that I'd never drink. So I had a lot of guilt there. Um, but it sort it did just sort of linger around that guilt. But I became more comfortable, right? Two days of the month, I'll go out and I'll drink. So after a game, Saturday night, party with the boys, I'll go and have a few drinks and then that'll be fine. So that's where it sort of, 17, 18 years old is when I first started, really. It's a cumulative, isn't it? And it and it's like, it's where you draw the line. And so when you start introducing like the two nights in, you kind of believe that you get away with it in the end and you don't even think about it, do you? Um, I mean, I've, I mean, I was never at your standard and long shot, but I've played some games, like really important games, like semi-finals of the cup. Literally, after being in from a club at four o'clock in the morning, it was a 10.30 kickoff from sit, standing on the pitch thinking, I want to throw up. It's horrendous. So going for your career, where did you go from there? From Brentford, I so out of that youth team, I was actually the only one that got a professional contract. So if, part of it, was I was really obsessed and I probably did more than some of the others. I weren't the best player, but I was more driven than a lot of other players. Um, I went from there. I played for AFC Wimbledon, which is quite interesting because at Brentford, I was this, you know, this shy lad that started to drink, started to become more social, that kind of thing. But at Wimbledon, I could completely, no one knew me there. So I could almost invent a new identity. So when I started going out with them, they only knew me as this confident lad on a night out. Because I, over the last couple of years, I became that on a night out, became quite extroverted, felt more confident with with the girls, that kind of thing. So you almost develop a new character when you when you sign for a new team. Um, but I went from there, AFC Wimbledon. I played for Welling United, um, so that was a, a drop down for me. I had a bad injury and had to play part time for a year, which was difficult. And then I did really well there, and Luton bought me, and that was a, a big move for me. Um, and that was sort of my, you know, the kickstart of my career. I played for Luton, played for Stevenage, and then ended up uh, at Newport County in Wales. Um, and that was the the final club that I had. And you had a big game, didn't you? It was at a cup game, Man City. Yeah. So I, there was like a bit of a running joke in my family. Like with when you played at the level I played, which was like League Two, you probably get one or two live games every year on Sky or BT Sport or whatever it is. I'd always have an absolute stinker. Always. Don't know if it was like the nerves or the pressure yeah. that got to me. And you start thinking about things that you, you never really think of. So my mum would come and watch me at a game or a couple of mates, family members. But when you're on telly, you'll have all these distant friends, you'll have family that you don't see very often. You'll have 
teachers and people that have sort of followed your career from afar, they all watch you for that that big game. And every time I'd have, I'd have a shock, I'd score our own goals, I'd get sent off. Um, so we we got drawn in the FA Cup against Leicester, which was a massive one for me. And it was a BBC game, so it was a like, prime time. And everyone else in the team was was over the moon because they were thinking, right, if I do well on BBC, I'll get a move. And, you know, if I do well against Leicester, I was the opposite. I was like, God, this game's going to be on telly. Everyone's going to watch me here, get run around by Jamie Vardy. But that game I actually did really well. Um, I got man of the match. We beat Leicester. And that set us up for a game against Man City in the last 16. So I never thought I'd get to play against a team like that, the level that I played at, million miles away from the standard of Man City. But we did really well. Um, we were nil-nil of them at half-time. And then they sort of showed their class and beat us 4-1. But that was actually the last game that I ever finished. And sort of my... My career was 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 ended a few days later, which was uh, which was quite bizarre. Yeah. Oh, it's devastating, mate. So a few days later, you were laying in bed, weren't you? And and you started having palpitations and. Yeah, I played I played a league game on the Tuesday and had to come off because I didn't feel right. So my legs went, felt ill, felt like I had the flu, and it was the next day that I was laid up in bed. And yeah, just. I did feel like I was coming down with the flu, um, so I didn't think too much of it. Um, and then, yeah, heart started going, palpitations, and uh, left it and left it. And then by the end, it was, you know, my heart was beating that fast. It, it was sort of shaking the bed. And my wife was pregnant at the time, so I didn't really want to panic her. But I said to her, you know, when it got later on, I said, you're going to have to take me to the hospital here. Um, and then she knew something weren't quite right there. And yeah, they they took my my blood pressure, and I sort of had a, a bit of an episode in in the in the hospital. Um, don't remember too much. Put on drips, and I stayed in the hospital for about ten days. I did loads and loads of tests, and it did. It, it felt bizarre. It felt like a bit of a a whirlwind that I didn't emotionally. I didn't know what was going on because a few days before I played that Man City game, and then I'm in a cardiac um, sort of ward on the NHS, and anyone that's been on that. I was in there and then every other bed, so there's probably about 10 other beds on my little ward, everyone else is 70, 80 years old. And you're in there thinking, I've just played against Man City last week. And these lot have got like oxygen tanks on their on their, on their backs. They're talking about they've smoked for years, they've drunk for years, they've abused their bodies. I was like, why am I in here with with these? Like, no disrespect, but... Mm. Yeah, after after about a week in hospital, I had a team of doctors that sort of surrounded my bed and they just said, look, what we've seen here, it's not safe enough for you to continue playing football. And the advice after that was, if you stop playing now, we don't think you'll need open heart surgery and a valve replacement. So that was the advice and I stopped. You know, you meant to get regular checkups and that happened. But about 18 months ago, I went back in for a check and they said, look, I do think you are going to need this open heart operation. And it links to alcohol a little bit and we'll come on to it in a sec. But when you have this operation, you go on blood thinners for the rest of your life. So you can't drink alcohol. You know, that is one of the, the big things. There's certain foods you have to avoid, but you cannot drink alcohol. And at this point, 18 months ago, I was probably in the height of my drinking. So my first question was, you know, they said, you're going to have to have this operation. I said, what does that mean? I can't drink anymore. And that was literally the first question I said, not like, what does this mean for my life going yeah. forward? Can I do this? Can I do that? And I remember the doctor saying to me, he was like, I didn't think that'd be the first question you asked, but no, this means you know you can't have, you can probably have one one drink because any more than that, your blood levels will spike. And I remember driving home and sort of thinking to myself, I was in a bit of denial at this point, but I knew I had some kind of issue of alcohol that I didn't like. 
And I remember sending a message to my mate saying, um, you know, in about, they reckon I was going to have to have this operation in a year or two. So I said, I've got a year or two before this operation. Let's get as much in as we possibly can. Let's get loads of nights out. Let's enjoy it because I ain't going to have to do this again. And in my head, it was like, right, I feel like I've got an issue, but in a year's time, I'll probably have to have this operation. I won't be able to drink again anyway. So I'll stop then. But in the meantime, I'll just, you know, I'll go and I'll go. Go out in glory, basically. Yeah. It, it's mad, isn't it? And, uh, you know, like you say about that question, that does that mean I can't drink then? I've asked that. Mm. Like I had um, an appointment with the doctors and I was petrified because like, I'm what, 58 this year. But at 50, you get like an MOT. And it, it, it's like not a mandatory thing, but it's a free thing on the NHS that, that they, they, and I was thinking, well, what are they going to find in my liver? And I remember for five, six days, I was so petrified mm-hmm. at the call from the doctors saying, you need to come in. And they did say, you need to come in, but they wouldn't turn me on the phone. And when I went in, they said, oh, your cholesterol's a bit high. Um, but apart from that, all good. And I thought, how can it be all good? If I'm drinking like I'm drinking for years, I couldn't understand it. Mm-hmm. But that almost gave me a ticket to go, well, you can carry on like this because if you've got away with that, then you're going to continue to get. It was a weird mindset that I went through in that. So after that, then when you come out, you kind of in your head, you thought, right, I've got a year to drink. What, how bad did your drinking get? It started off. Um... So my relationship with alcohol towards the end of my career was the guilt went a little bit as I got older. Um, and But still, football kept me on the straight and narrow. I was never, I was really professional, watch what I ate, watch what I drank. But I probably gave myself a couple of weekends where I'd have a little binge. I'd maybe start having a little bottle of wine with my wife at home and a few beers. But one thing I'd never done was like keep, I never really kept alcohol at home. We, if we had a bottle of wine, we'd bring it in, we'd drink it, but there was never like a, you know, fridge full of beers or a cupboard full of wine or spirits or anything like that. But when I came out of playing, I remember just getting like a crate of beers and putting them in the fridge and thinking like, it's a Tuesday night. I've never been able to do this before. Like mm. just have a beer on a, on a weekday because I've got training the next day. Don't have training tomorrow. And one thing was I was really anxious about what I was going to go into next and worried. Um, I wasn't really prepared for coming out of the game you know, when I did. And I had that chatterbox in my head that was constantly yapping away at me in the evening saying, you know, what are you going to do? Panicking. My wife's about to give birth. I've only ever earned money through football. Um, don't know who I am. Don't know what where I'm going to live. I was living in Wales at the time and it was just non-stop. Couldn't sleep. But when I had a couple of beers, that voice just disappeared. And that was like a coping mechanism for me. And those two beers turned into sort of four or five and probably six or seven in the evenings. And it just put me in like a, a little zone where I just zoned out. And my wife, because she was pregnant, she'd go up to bed a little bit earlier, get tired. So I had a bit of time on my own in the evenings. I really started to enjoy. And then when I became a dad, that time was probably even more precious because you, I'm trying to do everything I can to start my next career and be a dad. I didn't feel like I had any time for myself. So those evenings were like, right, unwind have a few beers and if I'd had three or four two or three beers my wife wouldn't say anything or if my mum was coming over to help she wouldn't really say anything they'd say like you know you've never done this before so enjoy it but when I started having four or five and 
six and seven, I remember just getting like a nagging voice from them. You know, are you, re- are you opening another one? And that just used to drive me mad. And I'd get all defensive mm. and I'd be like, I've never been able to do this before. Just let me, you know, give me a break. And that that led to me hiding hiding alcohol. So I was like, right, if they don't say anything when I have free, I'll just let them think I'm having free. And I'll put one in the freezer for when she goes to bed. I'll put one in the garden. I used to put loads in the garden. In the morning, loads of bottles. I'd get up before anyone else, take them to a different bin, which was around the corner. We lived at the time on like a, a little new build estate. So there were little park bins and stuff like that. One of the worst things was it was a Sainsbury's local about 30 seconds up the road. So if I ran out and once I started drinking, I did not want to stop. So if I ran out, I could just walk 30 seconds up the road without anyone knowing and bring another one back or bring another two back or pretend to take the dog out for a walk. And I started doing that and it started getting heavier and heavier and the guilt massively sort of piled on. I felt sluggish in the mornings. I didn't like looking in the mirror. I weren't looking after myself sort of physically. I weren't, if I drank, I ate awful. So I'd, I'd have a pizza, a microwave meal, a load of chocolate, mm. get up the next day feeling horrible. But I, on the outside, I was functioning quite well because I'd still get up early. I was still sort of working really hard during the day for my career. I'd still take my little girl to the park and try and play with her, even if I didn't feel great. So people were looking at me going, flipping out. He's, he's done all right since he's come out of football. He's, he's doing well. But inside, I was flipping, I was hiding so much. And mm. I'd have these little spells where I'd work away. So I'd go to a hotel for a couple of days. And that, for me, was like paradise. And my drinking weren't – I didn't want to be around anyone, just wanted to be on my own. So I could lock myself in a hotel room, watch the telly, do whatever, and drink as much as I wanted without anyone – without having to hide it without anyone nagging me and I'd black out in these hotel rooms and I'd go out on my own at night looking for a bar to just sit in on my own and yeah I'd, I'd just keep waking up the next day just so confused as why why I kept doing it but I just could not stop at the time and it was yeah a big release for me. It's like a mission of self-destruction because when you say that <laughs> I used to go away just for a night away just to change of environment and I used to take extra clothes to wrap the bottles in so i would say it was a uh, say for instance premier in it was um in the middle of nowhere and they always had a little pub connected to it so i would go shopping and i would buy a litre of vodka four pint cans of stella some crap to eat and i'd have a separate hold all for all this but wrap them all in close so that when i booked into the hotel they weren't clanking around go in the pub, have a meal, and then four pints of Stella or whatever. But previous to that, I would line everything up in my room. So when I got back, I would like hunker down. And I knew I was in for a complete session without anyone judging me. Oh, my God. And then pass out, basically, and wake up in the morning and think, God, how is this a break? I feel absolutely horrendous. But then I had all the evidence from what I had, like Tasmanian devil. I'd gone through the whole lot. And then it was like, how can I get rid of this? I even tried to look under the bed. It's awful. I know I'm embarrassed, but trying to find a place where I could hide the empty litre of vodka where I literally drank it like water. Then I went to the bin there. And then I went to a, like, as you say, like a little Sainsbury's like, and put it one in there and just to gradually get rid of the evidence on the way. On the outside, now people have said, I didn't even know you had a problem. Yeah. 
but it's in your your mental health, the shame you feel when it's like what, especially like you being like a professional footballer, you're at the top of your fitness and mental health as well. I imagine like when when you were flying and everything was going well for you, probably things couldn't be better in your lovely wife and child and whatever. And then you go and do that. And it's like, why? Why do I want to be on my own? Why do I want to bury this, that, and what? And even now, I I'm not sure I even know why. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't understand it. Um, mine was it was to to quieten that chatterbox. I think one of the things I couldn't understand was that I didn't want to go to a pub. I didn't want to go out with my mates. It, that weren't really like an appealing thing. I didn't want them to to know that how mm. much I was drinking. And that that element of of being judged for what you're drinking. I remember I'd put something up on ugh, when I had a drink. I'd go in this little zone where I became. I'd do things that I would never do sober. So I'd, I'd send a message to someone the next morning. I'd be like, "Why on earth did I send that?" Or I'd post something on social media, thinking, "What are you doing?" Or I'd buy stupid things on like online shopping and not have a clue that I bought them until they arrived. And I'd be like, "Where does that come from?" <laughs> and this this honestly, this used to happen like so often. And I remember putting something up on social media of just like me with like a pint or something like that. And like a couple of people messaging me back going, it's a Monday night. And I was like, oh, right. Don't, you know, don't other people do this. And I was getting like a few comments like that. And then the other thing that was tripping me up a lot was I think because I hadn't had, I didn't, hadn't been around the lads like in the changing room and I've missed that side of it. Anytime I went out socially, I just got so excited. So if I went out with my friends I didn't want anyone else to go home. I was drinking before they got there to get myself in the mood. I was drinking on the way back. Um, if I went out with my wife, even I was always like the the sensible one when I was playing. I had to go out quite a lot sober when I when I played. But when I came out, it was like, all right, this is my time now. This is my time to enjoy myself. And I was embarrassing her in front of her friends, and we get into arguments. And alcohol, looking back, was the only thing in every single aspect or every single issue that I was having alcohol was you know central to it I just didn't I didn't pay attention to it and I would I tried I've heard um a couple of people talk about this that they try and eliminate everything else I'll try and go to the gym I'll try mindfulness I'll try and meditate or watch my diet but alcohol just was like it's like right that's staying because I can't be sober because that is boring like that is a lesser life for me I want to have fun I want to unwind and for me, alcohol was key to all of that. So that's what kept me, probably kept me drinking. A stereotype of it will be boring, but also a bit of denial of, you know, I'm still doing all right. Like I'm not drinking as much as he's drinking or I'm not drinking as much as she's mm. drinking or can't be an alcoholic because I don't drink, you know, spirits. I don't drink every day. Um, I don't look like, you know, I'm not scruffy on the streets. Or, and just all these like stereotypical alcoholic images that you grow out of in your head but if someone had said to me at the time about sort of gray area drinking or sober curious and all these little things I've sort of looked into since I just ticked every box so I was going on google you know typing things in you know what is an alcoholic um you know guilt after drinking like all these little things so even though I was in denial I was curious about my drinking and I didn't like my relationship with alcohol and I do think a lot of it comes from that that guilt of not wanting to drink as a kid, the guilt of this isn't going to be good for my football career, 
the guilt of I don't like who I'm becoming. It just, I had so much negativity surrounding alcohol and I'm just so fortunate and so lucky that I did recognise the issue when I did. I mean, and there's the other thing as well about your career ending early because I know professional boxers that when their career's ended and they're not getting up at four in the morning, road running and training and that, that huge adrenaline rush of walking into the ring and and when that's over, they they've I know a couple that have died from alcoholism mm. because they they completely have gone back into their shell and they don't know how to deal with it. So was part of that? Do you think the did you feel like any resentment for your career because you were twenty eight and a lot of people yeah. they go until thirty five? Yeah, there's it's a really good question that because I I went into a a role that kept me involved in football after that. So pretty much as soon as I came out, I was still going and watching games every weekend. Um, and I did, I felt a bit of resentment. So I was 28 um, and I was watching other people. And at first there's a bit of a novelty when you come out of it. So you can start doing things you get, you know, there were initially weekends or I had spare time. And at the time a novelty was being able to drink and eat what I want. And I couldn't do that during my career. So at first, the first couple of months, I was I was like, I actually quite enjoy this retirement. But then, yeah, I did get that resentment. I was like, why? How come these can still do it and I can't? And I carry that with me quite a lot. Um, and it does. You go into that sort of self-pity, self-loathing. Yeah. But then, yeah, I think once I stopped drinking, and it probably is once I stopped drinking, it took me that long, I started to look back and think, this could have happened when I was 16. They could have diagnosed me at 16 and yes. said, you can never kick a ball again. And I look back and I had a 12-year sort of full-time professional career. And I'm so lucky that I got to do that. And yeah, it did end probably seven years earlier than I wanted to. But I look at it now and I'm like, I now have a seven-year head start on these lads that are still playing. Because they'll go through their own difficulties. Um, Hopefully not as bad as I did or not with alcohol. But the statistics are quite shocking in, in professional sports, you know. Players coming out, going into gambling, drug addiction, you know, sex, yeah. uh, gaming's a big one. Gaming Online addiction. shopping where they buy things and don't exactly remember that. it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, divorce rates are huge. Bankruptcy yeah. huge. And a lot of these young lads, like I was, have been known as the footballer since the age of eight. So yeah. if you go from eight, some, some retire at 38. So for 30 years, your whole world has revolved around a Saturday match day. Yeah. Every relationship you got, everything you eat, everything you drink, then all of a sudden it's gone and you don't really know who you are because I I didn't really separate the person from the player. And I think it's so important that you do that you 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 leave the player at the door when you go home. So for me, my my career was so up and down and inconsistent. And I put it down to that when we won a game or when I did well, I was up there, I was sky high, it was the best thing in the world. But when we lost, it was like drowning your sorrows and, you know, you wouldn't want to leave the house. Mm. And alcohol probably did creep in a little bit towards the end of my career with that, because if I had a bad game, I'd go home or I'd I'd be like, right, I'd get on the coach and be like, right, who's out? I need to forget about this. And it was a coping mechanism. And then if if you've won a game, it's like, right, who's celebrating? And alcohol's involved again. So... Looking back, it was it was present probably more than I thought in my career, um, but just didn't didn't really notice it. It's interesting, mate, because whoever I talk to who come to for one to ones with me, right, the first thing they say, 
I'm in an industry that alcohol is everywhere. I'm in a career that, you know, and I, and I say to, well, look, every career, because we are surrounded wherever we look by that. So when it comes to stopping, how did you deal with that? Uh, so I, I got in touch with probably about six months before I stopped, I got in touch with Sport and Trance. So they were set up um, by Tony Adams and they work in professional sport. So because I'm a member of the PFA, um, you qualify for, I think it's 12 counselling sessions. So I phoned up the PFA um, and I was in a, I was in a really bad place, like mentally. And it was, it was so much worse on a hangover the next day. Like the, the feeling I had this was awful. I remember phoning up the sporting chance on a, on a hangover and saying, look, I'm really struggling. Don't know what to do. I'm unhappy. I'm drinking heavily. Uh, I just need a bit of help. And I'd never had any kind of counselling before. And I went and spoke to someone. And if I'm honest, I just did not click with this counsellor. I came away feeling more frustrated than when I went in. So I, I stopped after two sessions, went back to drinking, forgot about it. And then it crept up again. And I got in touch with him again and said, look, I'm, I'm struggling. Nothing's getting better. And at this point, the same point, I'd had an argument with my wife on Father's Day of all days um, last year. And I can't really remember it, but I'd gone to bed really early. And instead of letting me go to bed, she came upstairs with my mum and they were just like, what is going on with you? Like every sort of social occasion at the minute, you're falling over, you're drinking, we're arguing. And I just broke down and I've never really sort of cried in front of my mum like that. But I remember sort of sobbing, just saying, look, I don't, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I'm drinking heavily. They both had no idea that I was hiding alcohol. So my wife had no idea. And my mum said, I have seen signs of this. Like I've seen you when we're having a barbecue, you're going around the corner and sneaking another beer. or you're So she'd seen little bits of it or she'd always comment, God, you drink so fast. Like you're, you're drinking free by the time anyone's finished one. But I remember I broke down to them. I got in touch with a new counsellor and she was amazing, a lady called Mandy, who specialised in alcohol. She's a, a former alcoholic or recovering alcoholic, whatever term. Um, she was amazing and it completely changed my perception of counselling. I was like, they, it does actually work if you get the right counsellor. And then I had about two weeks where I didn't touch a drop. And then I was like, right, I'm cured. Like I've learned my lesson. And I, I, yeah. and I said, right, I'm, I don't want to not drink at all. Um, so I'll, I'll have a two drink rule. So I go out and I'll have two drinks. And that lasted me about a week. And then I was like, right, maybe a free drink rule because maybe it takes me that third one to get a little bit merry. And then that went fine for another week or so. And then I had one day out with with two friends, um, went into town. And I think I must have had f- my free drinks in the first hour. Someone put another one in front of me and I was like, oh, go on, I'll, I'll have another one. And that night, the shops involved, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I fell over and I remember losing my wallet. And I got in and I saw sort of the look on my wife's face. And I've never felt guilt like it the morning after because I'd opened up to her, I'd got help, and then I'd just gone straight back to what I was doing. And as I said, I I felt that I felt horrendous on the hangover the morning after. And I went for a drive. I had to I had to actually work the next day. And looking back, you know, I'm ashamed because I probably was over the limit. It was about 10 o'clock the next morning and I got in at two. But I listened to a podcast of a former cricketer and I'm not a cricket fan, but I was working with a sports agency at the time. 
looking into agents. So I literally typed in on podcast sports agent. He was the first one that come up. I listened to his life story and he's a, he's 10 years sober, gone through this trauma, um, sounded exactly like me as a, as a young player, the pressure he put on himself. He felt like he was a pressure cooker and alcohol became his release, bit of trauma, lost his identity. And then the difference in his life. Now he's sober and I've, I've, I've still got the messages on my phone that I said, sent my wife that morning. And it was like, I don't, I feel like I can't moderate. I feel like I said, I'm, I'm quite sad, but I know that I know that I can't drink. I'm not like normal people. Well, that, that's what I said in the message. And yeah, I listened to that. I carried on with my counsellor and I said that I'd take a break for, try and get to a month. And that was a long, long month. Like I was nailing non-alcoholic beers. I was nailing chocolate. And that time that I was sat in the evenings overthinking, I was just trying to feel that any way I could. And I was in a real low mood for that month. So I can understand why people want to, you know, think, oh, this ain't for me because it was a, it was a tough month that mm. after probably six weeks, uh, eight weeks, I started exercising more, started eating better. My relationship was better. My, my job sort of picked up. My mood was lifting. And it just every day just seemed like there was a new thing that was sort of unfolding. And I'd say I got to uh, initially after about two or three months, it was only my mum and my wife that knew anything about this. And I was like, don't tell anyone, not my brother, not any other family members. I was so ashamed to say that I had some kind of issue with, with alcohol because mum, this is another thing. My mum and my immediate family, I, I hid that I drank for them f- until I was 24. So every family party, I'd be sober and say that I didn't drink. Anytime I went out with friends, if there was a photo or a social media post, I'd hide the drink behind my back because I never wanted my mum. She'd sacrificed so much for me to become a footballer, took me everywhere. I didn't want to throw it in her face by not looking after myself properly. So I always hid my alcohol from them. So when I came out about six months in and I went on to talk sport, um, there's a presenter called Jim White that's uh, 10 years sober. He said, come on you know, I think your, your story is really powerful if you're willing to share it. And I opened up on that and that was sort of a game changer for me because I started becoming sort of obsessed by this alcohol free world and the community that I found people like yourself. I was desperate to listen to podcasts and understand a little bit more. And I think that community aspect of it is massive. Like if I hadn't listened to that podcast, if I hadn't then sort of searched for things or, found other people that resonated with me. There was a story that you said about you were cooking at home and there was bottles of wine there that you you were going through. And I remember listening to that and I was like, I've done exactly that. And I'm not the only one going through this. And you've managed to get sober and other people have managed to get, and they just kept looking for these stories and found it so helpful. You know, I didn't go to AA. I didn't define myself as an alcoholic, but I found a community. I found Instagram really powerful. I found podcasts really powerful and yeah, after three or four months, everything just sort of clicked into place. And it was like a, like an enlightenment, really. It's like you found out something that not a lot of people have found out. It feels like you've got a little hack that other people haven't got. And I now have been given like a massive buzz and a massive purpose that was missing when I left football of people getting in touch with me, people resonating with my story and I look back and I'm like, that podcast pretty much saved me, probably saved my my life, my marriage, my, you know, everything like that. So if I can do that for someone else, you know, someone can listen to this and, and hear something, 
then that is the biggest sort of purpose that, that I could ever want. Yeah, I I 100% agree. And uh, it's planting one seed in one person's mind that can change. I had a woman come up to me just before Matt Pink's boat party where I met you. And she said to me, you, you won't know who I am, but you replied to a message on Instagram. And I've said on here before, I always go out of my way to respond to everyone because I, I think it's important because people are reaching out for me to just not bother is I'm, you know, not living up to my responsibility there. But she said, one thing you said to me was you were never too old to change your life, you know, and she's now two years sober and it, you know, it's incredible, but it's the ripple effect that it can have on their marriages, their relationships, their families, the whole thing, you know, and for you, at what are you how old are you now i'm 31 oh 31 the work you can do in this community is incredible and you're such a humble lovely man as well and people resonate i mean the story you've told today was basically me like the hiding and the binging and it was me coughing when i'd open a a can so that is exactly what i used to do Honestly, exactly what I used to do. It's mad. And you think you're getting away with it. I had a friend that would drink six, seven cans of Guinness and say, Guinness doesn't smell, so she doesn't know I'm drinking. And I'm like, are you having a laugh, mate? <laughs> I can smell alcohol a mile away now, and it's I hate it. I absolutely hate the smell of it. But as in your career, so what are you doing now to do with your football career? So I, I work as a so part-time, I work as a scout so a first team scout for a championship club so I'll do their northwest recruitment so that gives me my football buzz so I'll go to two or three games a week under 23 games first team games and that is my sort of passion for football still and then on top of that I've got um, a company that I run um, called B5 Consultancy and we work with the majority of Premier League clubs um, championship clubs clubs in the football league in WSL in different sports and we'll educate on off-field behaviours. Uh, originally, it was a lot to do with social media. So we found that a lot of players were, especially young players, sort of coming through and making mistakes on social media or how they were representing the club when they were away from the club. Um, but it's completely... At this this thing that I've gone through with alcohol-free and, and my drinking now has been taken into football. So I go in and I'll talk about escapism quite a lot because a lot of these lads are looking for that. There's a lot that are away from home, away from family at a really young age. And theirs might not necessarily be alcohol, but it might be, you know, a multitude of other things that they they go to to switch off and to get rid of that voice. Um, And I'll mentor a few players at different clubs. Um, So I've got that going on. I've got the scouting going on. And this this new world of sort of the alcohol-free space is... It's something that I really want to explore. Um, it does give me a, a real buzz. You know, I love reading about it. I love talking to people like yourself. I, I, I'm the same as you. If someone messages me, just the feeling I get from from being able to be on the end of that. I've had I've had players that I've played against. So some in particular that are like big, strong men that look like they have not got an issue in the world. Some of them multi-millionaires played in the Premier League. They've reached out to me and, and told me how much they're struggling. And I'm like, wow, I never would have expected you to be like that. You're absolutely in unbelievable shape. You've got a bloody mansion. You've got a beautiful family. But this you know, alcohol does not discriminate. Like 
no matter what sort of stage of life you're at and how rich you are, poor you are, male, female, it's an addictive substance and so many people lean on it for different things. So I look back at myself and originally it was for social confidence. It was to talk to girls, it was to dance. Then it went from sort of, that was that was sort of a pleasurable thing. And then it went to like masking pain. It was like, how can I get rid of this pain short term so it would just disappear? And I think that comes in so many different forms. And I want to go in and sort of take what I've done in sport and, you know, take it to other areas. And I'm so passionate about it because I, I go into London or I'll go to my wife's a singer and I'll go to bars. And in particular men, I think, you know, I want to help because... I think a lot of a lot of young lads go through what I went through, like really awkward, socially awkward, go to alcohol as a sort of coping mechanism and it stays and it gets worse. You drink heavier. Um, you know, I've seen people go off the rails, become violent. You look at some of the stats in sort of sexual assault and crime and uh, suicide, huge. Like mm. there's so many different areas it affects. And one thing that's really powerful for me is, not necessarily the person getting in touch with me that is drinking, but their family members and realizing how many people it affects and actually just realizing when you start looking at different books and listening to different people, just how ingrained it is in society and like how it just is every, an everyday part of your life. And there was a post that put up yesterday about Jack Grealish and, you know, Man City have just won the Premier League and He's a young lad and I've been that young lad that's just one promotion and you're, you're on top of the world. And that I want it much lower down. He's won the Premier League. But he put something up. Um, what's everyone drinking tonight? Beer, Jager bombs, or nothing, I'm boring. And I'm like, ah, that is nothing against him. But that's exactly the thing that keeps people drinking because they don't want to be associated with that. They don't want to be seen as boring. So if you can be someone like yourself, like Andy Ramage that I've come across, I looked at celebrities quite a lot, like Bradley Cooper. How can you tell me Bradley Cooper's boring or lives yeah. a boring life? He's been sober 10 years. Yeah. He's done everything he's done. So if you can get sort of role models like that, that can become better men, better dads, better husbands, you know, we need that in society. We need the statistic of young men and, and middle-aged men committing suicide. We need to try and, you know, find a way around it. And alcohol is often heavily involved. Oh, wow, mate. Um, I've literally, I've got goosebumps listening to that because that was so powerful. And uh, what that took me back to is um, I've recently finished a course with Nakoa and I've talked for them at um, an exhibition in Brighton. Uh, I know Josh Conley, Sarah Drage, Kerry Walker, Camilla Tomney, you know, like people that have grown up with alcoholic parents and I was that parent. Um, and when I did a talk in a school with Sarah, um, it was in front of 400 students and afterwards the kids were coming up and they were asking me, you know, how can I talk to my dad? It breaks your heart because they don't quite understand it. And and the the biggest thing that I hear from them is they notice this, the change in them, that they become hypersensitive around their parents drinking, where it could be a certain look in their eye or something they do that they just know, Oh my God, they're drinking again. And and it's scary, you know? So there's so many conversations to be had out there and it's up to people like ourselves and, and other role models to keep talking, you know, keep sharing and, and making this community look appealing and not boring and 
It isn't. I mean, look at a boat party um, with Matt. And unfortunately, you can't make the event that I'm holding. But there, there's um, James Vecalodi there from Death of Anna playing live. Yeah. Jack from Tova. Jessica Wilde, you know. I've got a magician there. Five hours long. People are going to remember it in years to come yeah. because they're not escaping. Yeah, why would you want to escape that? You want to embrace all of it. I, I feel, especially at those events, that people, you're actually you. Like I was, I was an introvert when I was sober and I was an extrovert when I was drunk. So I, I couldn't, I was so confused that when you go there, I came away from that bow party thinking, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm probably a little bit nervous here. Cause I went on my own. I was meeting Andy there. Um, and I'd seen a couple of people on social media, but I went on my own. Um, I would never have done that when I was drinking. Cause I was like, I need a drink to, to be, to be in, in front of a social situation. Yeah. And then you go to somewhere like that and you're like, I know for a fact I'm not going to upset anyone. I'm not going to regret anything. I'll probably get a decent night's sleep after this. I'll meet loads of people. And if they don't like me, they actually don't like me, but I'm quite comfortable with that because at least it's not, oh, they would have liked me if I'm sober, but I was that drunken idiot. So yeah. you come away, and we spoke about this before, like walking clean, I think is like the best thing, like not having to look over your shoulder, not having to lie, remember the lie, regret what you've done, worry about things cringe when someone brings up a story and you're like oh god what's going to come out here yeah not having any of them feelings is yeah. the best feeling in the world for me it's so powerful what you said that because i've always like compared my relationship with alcohol to like a wild affair or something because it's so i kept it secret and at the time it, it was exciting you know the drinking and and it was secret and whatever mm. and then then i got to a state not that i have had one by the way but it was a comparison that i looked at it like this this devil woman that was charming me over every night it's like come on darling you know you want me you know <laughs> you want me and in the morning i regretted all of it mm. wake up four in the morning sweating thinking what have i done I don't know, you know, has anyone seen this and whatever? And when I actually faced the music and thought, I've got to get out of this toxic relationship, and it's almost like I blocked this mistress from my life, it made me, yeah, I'm a very visual person, you know, so it made me see it like the relationship I was having in this, this like love affair hmm. had to end. And that really, really help me see it like that because we are in a relationship with alcohol because it it, it brings you in it yeah. over over intoxicates you into the the sort of um fake persona that it is you know the false beliefs of it will relieve your anxiety when you know that a few hours later you're 10 times more anxious it will help you sleep it will make you feel more comfortable in a social environment. There's so many fake beliefs in alcohol. And when you see it for what it really is, you can breathe, you can be authentic. And I don't know about you, mate, but I I know who I am now, and it's completely different from what I thought I was because I was that loud person going in, Wee, oh, I'm here now, yay, Glugs is here, let's have a few beers. When now, I actually think I'm pretty quiet, and I'm quite happy with that, really. Yeah, I'm I'm exact same and I think I think a lot of the football environment did that to me as well. So I think I was I was I have been a people pleaser growing up and I think that comes from my childhood, like not wanting people to argue and trying to keep the peace. And I would I'd want to wear a certain item of clothing, I'd want to listen to a certain music, but it didn't really fit with everyone else. 
So I was listening to stuff that I didn't really want to be listening to. I'd be wearing stuff that I weren't wearing that I didn't want to wear just to sort of fit in. But now, and and especially like posting stuff on social media, I was always worried. I was like, oh, this is going to make me look a certain way. And now I'm like, don't really care. If someone, you know, wants to talk about this with their mates or take the mic, then I'm, I'm absolutely comfortable with it. If I want to wear this type of clothing, I'll wear it. If I want to listen to the music, that's me. And that has literally been like a switch since since I've been going alcohol free. It's like I don't really care because I'm I'm now starting to find that authentic me. And I'm like you, like I never ever I go out and I look for like like nice places to go and view a sunset and sunrise and go for nice walks and read books and all this stuff. Like I was almost proud that I didn't read as a footballer. I was like reading books and yeah, and going on little walks like that. And that, that ain't what I want to do, but. I found like you have to determine what your own version of fun is. So for for a lot of people, it's going out to a nightclub. That isn't my version of fun anymore. And I'm comfortable with that. Mm. Whereas before it'd be like, oh, this is what everyone thinks is fun. So I've got to go and do it. I've got to go and be like everyone else. But it's like, no, I'm I'm comfortable in going to the gym, diving in the sea at, <laughs> at times in the morning playing with my little girl. These are the things that I value way above alcohol or way above, you know, what, what anyone else thinks anymore. Amazing, mate. And your lovely wife, how are things there? Because yeah. uh, great now. She was um, a singer in a S Club 8, wasn't she? She was, yeah. She was in, yeah, she was in S Club Juniors and then they, they ended up being S Club 8 when they grew up a little bit. Um, but yeah, she's she's amazing. She's been so supportive. Our relationship now is so much better um, because I did become that liability and I, I picture her at times like having to keep me up and how, how I was in front of her friends maybe and yeah. stuff like that. Um, but she's, you know, she, she's had to go through a lot because she's, you know, she's, she's been a new mum and she's gone through experiences. She's transitioned from, you know, becoming this, it's very similar to my journey in football, this sort of superstar at 10, 11 years old up until 15, 16. And then, having to come out and go into sort of a, a more normal job, if you will. But mm. she's actually really picked up with her singing. Um, so she's she's singing locally a lot and gigging a lot, and that's given her own independence back. I'll have to get her at one of your events soon. But she's she's also formed a, a reunion with S Club 7. So she's playing, she was in Prague last weekend. She's got a gig in Dubai. She's playing Manchester Arena in October. So yeah, it's it's gone it's gone brilliantly for her as well. Fantastic, mate. Well, look, it's been an absolute real joy for me to talk to you today. I'm so grateful and I feel really excited to um, maybe do something together at some point in the future. Um, I think you've received some wonderful news that I think I'm allowed to talk about. Um, I was in the head office of Alcohol Change UK yesterday and they said you popped in. Uh, yes. Yeah. So they, you know, I want to give back and work with charities. I really believe in and people that I really believe in the messaging. Um, and yeah, they, they, I've, I went in there and um, looks like I'll be doing some, hopefully doing some work like you, like you've been doing, um, you know, in the coming months and years. So again, you know, you're someone that really helped me on this journey um, at a different point. So it's been a pleasure to talk to you, mate. And you do make it, you make it really comfortable for, for me to sort of let loose a little bit and, it can be a, it could before be sort of an awkward subject to talk about and I didn't really want to talk about it, but I actually really enjoy talking about it now. And I think a lot of people get to that stage. And like you said before, if you can say something and one little nugget of what we've spoken about here 
can can prompt someone to do something or identify something because it's what really helped me I'm sure it's helped you go through but I just think it's it's so powerful and you know I'm I'm looking forward to being part of your live fun um next month and yeah looking for ways that you know people like myself and you can just change the way that we we view alcohol and change mm. the way that you know if a young lad goes through life thinking you know I don't have to do this or I don't have to do that or a mum at the end of the working week or you know someone in the city that feels that they have to go out and entertain we just need to change the messaging around alcohol we're not trying to ram anything down anyone's throat and you know sit on a high horse we're, we're just saying look we've been where you've been we we know that this is a better way of living we're not going to force it down you but if you can if you can start looking and asking questions and seeing the way we're actually being conditioned without realizing it then then it's up to you once you've got all the information because I look back at our, our mums and dads and grandparents like the education they had was you know smoking was good for you drinking yeah. when you're pregnant is is a good idea have a guinness the education's there for us now so we just have to try and share it and you know open people's eyes a little bit mate i'm sure this podcast will do just that you've been amazing thank you so much for joining me and uh, i'll see you on my live on june the 12th hopefully this episode will be out but if it's not then people would have seen it and it would be on my instagram as well so and let's do something together soon mate it's been amazing having you on thank you so much no thank you dave cheers mate see you soon mate see you mate I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app, Sober Dave, on the Apple and Google Play Store. And on there, you will find lots of tutorials, tips and support to help you stop drinking. And there are also meditation audios, food plans and chat forums. You can also find me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. But until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.